0: You're listening to the Diabetic Running Podcast, helping people run their blood sugars one workout at a time. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 12 of the Diabetic Running Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Foote. Today, I'm super excited to have John Roth on the show. Interestingly enough, John and I share pretty similar stories in the sense that we were both pilots and we essentially lost the ability to fly due to our type 1. I guess more so the ability is still there, but the entitlement isn't. Outside of being a pilot, though, John's a pretty avid biker and runner. And like me, he was diagnosed late, even a little bit later. He was actually diagnosed at 36. But about succeeding on MDI and how he's been really successful on the keto diet. And without further ado, here's my interview with John Roth. So I'm joined here today by John Roth. John, how you doing? Good. Awesome well, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and reaching out. Um, you have an incredible story, and I, I think it's pretty awesome to be able to share um, you know something unique for the show, not only someone who you know is a pilot but it's also an endurance athlete and a type one diabetic. So first of all, before I forget, where are you at? you're in Colorado, right?
1: Uh, yep, um just outside of uh, Denver, so um Uh, Some folks that are beer drinkers may have heard of Golden, Colorado, so we're about two miles away from there.
0: (laughs) So I'm so jealous because you have such access to trails and parks.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a number of different trail systems that we can uh, ride and or run to just right out the front door. So it's uh, very fortunate in that manner.
0: Awesome. So uh, without further ado, if you want to go ahead and kind of tell us your diagnosis story, that's always one of the biggest questions I have for people is how they became not only an athlete, but a type one diabetic athlete.
1: Sure. Um, so, um, I was basically diagnosed, uh, three years ago. Um, so at the time I'll date myself here, I was 36 years old. So, yeah. um, you know, fair, fairly, I guess, old <laughs> for such a diagnosis. So uh, I guess that would kind of put me into the LADA, um, category, um yeah. but uh yeah it was uh definitely uh kind of a big shocker um i don't think anybody is expecting this um i'm sure yourself included
0: no not at all- w- were you flying <laughs> at the time like were you you were currently on flight status right
1: uh yes uh yeah, so you know background as far as career wise um you know uh along with um a couple of other uh degrees um i've just been pursuing a professional aviation career um, right out of high school, basically, and went to uh, Ohio State University um, as a result. And, um, you know, flew there, uh, did some flight instruction while I was at university and uh, then did air cargo and some government contracts uh, with that company uh, to build time. And then, um, you know, back in uh, 2005, I uh, got my first um, job with a uh, regional airline and uh, have been a uh, 121 airline pilot since up until three years ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: how long do you think you were flying with symptoms before, like you'd had enough and had to go in, or how did it? How did you end up finding out?
1: Sure. So um, I was diagnosed uh, actually about this time. Uh, so this is just now coming up on three years. So January. Um, and I would say maybe, um, about a month to two months prior, um, you know, I started to have at, at the time I didn't realize it, but, um, you know, started to have a little bit of a uh, change in my, um, in my vision. Um, and, you know, went into, uh, an optometrist and, you know, they changed my uh, prescription cause I wear contacts and, you know, that seemed to address the issue. Um For a little bit, but you know, looking back at it, you know I hadn't had any change in my uh contact prescription in the previous you know eight years or something, so yeah, yeah that so was definitely you're the first
0: one. person I've ever met that that was like the most discernible symptom at first,
1: yeah, you know um, and it's one of those things where you know looking back at it, that was definitely like the first real sign I think that that I started to notice, which you know I'm sure each, you know, story is, is a little bit unique and it probably has, you know, a bit to do with your physiology too. But plus, you know, I guess for someone like me, you know, I use my eyes every day for work, you know, and I need to be able to see things at a great distance in clearly. And so maybe other folks that don't need to do that, they may not notice it right away. I don't know. So, yeah, no,
0: I completely understand that. That was one of my biggest concerns too, is I'm I was in a course at the time and I was sitting in the back of the class and I couldn't read the projector anymore. And I was like, God, this is not good. You know, but I was having a bunch of the other symptoms too. You know, I was going to the bathroom all day. I had lost like 70 pounds. And so I could, I could point to those other things as more, you know, alarming than
1: my vision. Well, and that, you know, that came along as well. Um, you know, because after the uh, vision stuff, um, you know, then I started to have you know more fatigue during workouts and, you know, just. not having normal energy levels um and then probably the maybe three weeks prior um uh you know i started to have the weight loss you know i I currently and up until my diagnosis you know generally sit right around 160 to maybe as much as you know 175 when i'm you know doing a lot more weight training um and at the time you know i i was uh when I ended up going into the hospital, you know, I was all the way down to like 150 pounds, so which yeah. was not a lot. You know, I don't have a frame that I can just take 20 pounds off of, and it's not yeah. a big like deal.
0: You're already slim. After you got diagnosed, did you have to go back to your old prescription for your contacts.
1: Well, yeah, the the really wild thing about that was that um, because of that, that's what causes the blurred vision is the inflammation in the capillaries in your retina and in your eye. Um, and in the muscles surrounding your eye. And um, as a resultant, I guess it's fairly common when I start talking, talking to my friend who is an optometrist, that after you, you know, start taking insulin and you start correcting your blood sugars, it's almost like those vessels have a reactionary uh, response where they constrict and so for about two or three weeks after i got out of the hospital um i didn't need glasses at all <laughs> mm-hmm. so it was really bizarre i had 20 20 vision for about three weeks and then it so gradually di- started diabetes
0: off. cured your, your vision
1: yeah yeah for three weeks but you know it was <laughs> nice while it lasted you know so it's,
0: it's, that's so interesting i've never heard that before
1: yeah it, it's really it was really bizarre but um you know my my friend who's a very well-known uh, ophthalmologist um he uh um uh yeah he said no that's that's not that's not uncommon, you know, he's, and he' explained the whole deal the physiology behind it, which was yeah. uh, really interesting,
0: and so you can't fly anymore
1: right, so um obviously um you know uh yeah, it was kind of funny that the way I ended up in the hospital was uh you know as you had described and pretty much every other type one can can attest to. You know, that last uh, probably two, three weeks before I ended up in the emergency room, you know, um, lots of fatigue, lots of drinking water, just, you know, thirsty all the time, getting up, you know, four or five times or more during the night to pee and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, I had uh, I was actually um, eating breakfast, you know, getting ready to kind of, you know, um, to head to work to uh, for another three-day trip and finally just, you know, was so fatigued. Yeah, you know, my wife came home from work and, um, in the morning at the time she was doing, um, night shifts as a veterinarian. Um, but, uh, you know, she kind of came in and kind of saw me and I said, yeah, I think I need to, you know, I think I need to call in sick. You know, I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm fit to fly. And, you know, at that time she was, you know, kind of like, well, not only are you calling in sick, but we're also going to the emergency room cause this is not right. <laughs> so. Um, and then I ended up in the emergency room. Um, and of course, you know, it's never a good thing when, you know, you tell them your symptoms, they take a finger stick and they kind of part the waters for you and they take you right back.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Did you see your finger stick reading?
1: Um, I did not, but I asked uh, one of the nurses later and it was for their meter, um, basically at the front desk kind of deal is. It was it was high. It wouldn't read it, meaning it was probably over four fifty. Yeah. And then when I uh, talked to the doctor later on, because I had to spend that night in the ICU, um, uh, they said that when they were by the time they were able to, you know, use I guess a more clinical meter or measurement, it was uh, at seven ninety three, I believe. So wow. it was definitely quite high, but. Um, Yeah, so when I was uh, in the emergency room, kind of laying there, getting hooked up to everything, kind of pulled up the FAA website and, you know, looked, because I knew that's right where my brain went was, uh, this is not good for my medical status. Yeah. And uh, right there it was, you know, insulin-dependent diabetics, you know, it doesn't specify type one or type two, just if you require insulin, um, that is a disqualifying event for uh, first and second class medical
0: So you're such a pilot immediately looking up the regulation,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so you you were an athlete before you got diagnosed and now after you've been diagnosed, you're still an athlete. Talk to us a little bit about, I mean, what were you doing before we were flying and working out and mountain biking and running? What have you been doing since? And, you know, how's that, how's that changed for you since you got diagnosed?
1: Sure. So, um, You know, prior to diagnosis, you know, I kind of was, um, I guess, able to, um, I guess, practice or consume what would be considered a more of a endurance athlete's uh, diet, you know, like where, you know, you can get away with uh, eating a little bit more, you know, carbohydrates and, you know, I I would eat prodigious amounts of uh, these things called Muddy Buddies, which were basically checks Mix with sugar and chocolate on them. (laughs) (laughs) Naturally. Yeah, sure. You know, why not? Um, and, uh, you know, definitely a higher carbo- carbohydrate type diet, you know, for uh, all the various um, activities. And then um, after diagnosis, you know, my, you know, because of the different types of activities, all the uh, outdoor activities and, you know, hiking, mountain biking, backpacking, you know, running, trail running, all that kind of stuff was, um, uh, was something that I immediately, you know, wanted to return back to as soon as possible because it was such a you know central part of my life, you know? And, um, aside from flying, I mean, you know, I always would tell people, you know, I, I work to, to play, you know, like I, I, you know, you want to go to work, so you have money to go out and do the fun stuff, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. And how did um, your relationship with it change afterwards though?
1: Um yeah so after diagnosis you know you just i started to put a lot of um and kind of implement some of the you know research and and some of the books and stuff that i had I looked at when i was in uh or when I was at ohio State um and doing a minor in you know um, physiology and sports nutrition and started to kind of figure out okay like what causes the dysregulation of uh you know your blood sugars and you know what uh, does insulin do, and what is the uh, hormonal effects in your body? And kind of searching for, you know, how do I return back to, aside from flying, which was my profession, but how do I return back to the activities that both myself and my wife, you know, and most of my friends all enjoy? Um, because I didn't want type one diabetes to become an obstacle to the activities that I truly uh, valued. So. Um, You know, how I dealt with it from there is, you know, you just gradually had to work, I worked my way back into activity. You know, I probably two weeks after I got out of the hospital, went back to the gym and started to try and test things out in a controlled environment. Um, You know, and uh, said, okay, you know, I can do some squats and I can walk on the treadmill and, you know, here's my blood sugar. And this was before I had a CGM. So it was, uh, you know, a little bit trickier because you had to do a lot more finger sticks. But, Um, how long did you go
0: without a CGM?
1: Uh, probably six months, maybe. Um, okay. Yeah. I went like two. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. Um, hopefully, you know, and, and I was talking to my endocrinologist about this and, you know, for type ones, hopefully, you know, of course we all know the, um, hurdles of health insurance, but, hopefully CGMs. And now that that, uh, Libre freestyle has been approved in the U S those will become more standard of care. Um, because it is, I feel like that's absolutely crucial for, um, you know, control of the disease. And also if you're active, you know, I think it's indispensable. You yeah.
0: Know? Interestingly enough, though, I've seen some, at least I've talked to a few diabetics now that could wear one, but don't like they, yeah. they feel comfortable enough. And I'm, I'm kind of jealous of them that they feel so comfortable with their blood sugars that they know when and what and where they're at all the time without having a CGM. And, you know, maybe some of that is true. And some of that, you know, I'm sure maybe they thought they were at something and they're at something different maybe, but written, you know, maybe they are just perfect at it, but
1: right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, and I think it's just like anything else, you know, there's a lot of personal preference to it. Um, You know, another big factor behind, uh you know why I am a, why I'm personally a big proponent of uh CGMs um is just that it, it really gives you a better or uh, a more clear idea of you know what's going on and um and then of course going back to my career that's I feel like is going to be one of the big chips to play so to speak to hopefully get back to a flying status is to be able to show you know data that says, Hey, here's what I, you know, here's my control. It's in these ranges. It's controlled. You know, here's my blood work to back it up. You know, I've been able to maintain non-diabetic blood glucose values and A1C values for the last two and a half years. Yeah. Here it is. And so, yeah, I mean, and it's not both of those,
0: I think both of those together is what's incredible because you could show a really good A1C, but that doesn't necessarily give you the full picture Sure. Uh, The CGM is what it gives you because now the CGM can tell you how much of that time you were actually within range. Whereas an A1C, you could spend a lot of time high and a lot of time low, well, well out of the ranges that you want to be in. But at least with, you know, most CGMs, it'll give you, you know, a 90 day average within range and you could see like, Hey, I was between 80 and 180 for 96% of the time. Yep. Here's how awesome I am or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Whatever the number is for you. Right. And so that's
1: why that's incredible.
0: I, I I wish you luck on that. We'll see if hopefully it doesn't fall on deaf ears for another two or three years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll see. And luckily I've got a lot of good people, you know, working with me and, and there's other people involved, you know, as well. Um, but you know, yeah, that's, you know, again, on the professional side of things, but, um, you know, getting back to, uh, you, you know, yeah, exercise. Training. And yeah. So what, on. What yeah your, training.
0: What's your training look like now? What do you, what are you focusing on? Cause I know you, you trail run yeah. and you mountain bike, which yep. one are you leaning towards now? And then how are you managing that with your diabetes?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'd say, you know, 80, 75, 80%, you know, mountain biking and, you know, with some road riding thrown in there for, you know, um, in between training or like, you know, before work, when I have time to go hit a mountain bike trail, I can, you know, go out on a, 20 mile, 30 mile, you know, road bike ride real quick. Um, and then, you know, running wise, um, you know, I, you know, I don't do a tremendous amount of you know distance running per se, like I'll, you know, do two, three, four, five five miles sometimes. Um, you know, and then particularly on the shoulder seasons, like in the fall, and then maybe a little bit in the spring, you know, um, I'll do more running because it's a little bit more accessible and, you know, the trails aren't, Opened up, maybe from snow and that kind of stuff um, but uh yeah, so I'll, you know I do majority of mountain biking um, and ride for a local shop team um, and ha- I was actually with that team before I got uh, diagnosed, and um you know my wife and I do a number of different races. we probably focus more on the longer distance events, so generally stuff in in excess of thirty miles um, she's done. Uh, up to the uh, uh, Leadville 100. I don't know if you've heard of that race. Yeah, but nice. um, um, I have not done anything of that uh, uh, nature. <laughs> um, probably my longest uh, mountain bike race um, was one that uh, her and I did um, out here in Colorado, which was uh, 24 hours in the Sage. So it was a 24-hour race. And then we did another one um, a couple years ago. It was actually... Um, called the 18 hours of fruta. And, um, we, we did that. And then I actually did that after I was diagnosed as part of it, uh, as part of a team, um, with some other guys that I know.
0: Yeah. So. Well, tell me about that. How do you prep for that? Like going into that race? I mean, what is your insulin regimen like that you feel comfortable sharing? I mean, sure. Were you, were you still on um, MDI at the time or like injections or were you on a pump and kind yeah, of how, does, how so, does that play out for you for a race? Cause I'm visualizing me on a mountain bike with like Uh a backpack full of diabetes supplies and food, (laughs) you know, I'm trying to figure out the logistics of racing that far and long while Mm -hmm. trying to manage your glucose.
1: Right. Well, that's where, you know, I'm a big proponent of, you know, um, combining your nutrition um, with your diabetes care. You know, I think it's an integral part of it. Like it has to, you know, especially if you're an athlete, you know, you, you really have to put a lot of concentration on your nutrition, um, to give you the ability to, to safely, um, perform particularly on endurance events, you know, and when we go out on just regular mountain bike rides, we're, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles away from the trailhead, you know? So, um, I still do MDI actually. Um, I've never been on a pump. Um, I haven't really had any desire to try it. Um, I do uh you know long acting insulin uh either two or three times a day so I use uh, levmir um pens um do a morning injection and usually an evening injection so you can split the dose depending on your activity level um and occasionally um I'll do three times a day because um I'll do a morning dose you know if I know I'm going to go out on a uh long endurance type event um I'll cut my you know, dose, my morning dose down, do the event, because obviously when you're exercising, you know, you have uh, a different uh, hormonal response to endurance, uh, um, uh, you know, events and or training. And then after I get done with the event, you know, I'll take a small secondary dose and then I'll do my evening dose, which again, depending on my activity level, I'll modify that dose as well. So you don't end up going low at night. Yeah. So
0: if you're, I mean, on the bike for these longer runs, you're going to have to eat. Mm-hmm. Are you pulling out a pen while you're riding and bolusing, or are you just kind yep. of riding your 24 hour insulin, or your, I guess, for your 12 hour insulin?
1: Um. Yeah. Basically, I'm just going off of my basal uh rate. Um. And then another tactic that I've um started to use in the last year and a half is become uh fat adapted. So, um, you know, I started to do a lot of research behind uh, low carbohydrate um uh, nutrition and diet and, uh, have become, you know, adapted so that my, you know, my body and really anyone's body that, that, that gets that metabolic transition made can more efficiently access and use body fat for their main energy source, as opposed to glucose mm-hmm. and, or, uh, store glycogen in your body. You and know, so your do, liver you, muscles. do you
0: classify as a keto, like a, on a ketogenic diet?
1: Um, sort of, but um, you know, a full ketogenic diet is, you know, um, I guess technically or clinically classified as someone who's between you know 0. 0.4 and up to you know maybe 4.2 millimoles of uh ketones in their blood. Um, so I now I, I classify myself more in the low carb um range or, or region, I usually consume somewhere between. 40 to maybe 80 grams of carbohydrates a day Mm -hmm. um 80 and and the upper limits is generally when i am doing you know long uh and or you know bigger days of mountain biking running backpacking whatever it might be because your body can tolerate or you know needs a little bit more um carbohydrate yeah but um you know kind of transitioning your metabolism so that Ideally, somewhere between sixty and maybe seventy five percent of your energy requirements are coming from fat metaboliz- me- metabolization as opposed to mainly being uh, glycolytic or you know glu- uh, glucose dependent like you know myself included. a lot of endurance athletes are because that's just that has been the dogma for many, many years, and a lot of the new science and research is getting away from that, and a lot of yeah. um, really high end uh, triathletes, uh, ultra endurance runners, um, Chris Froome, you know Tour de France winner, they all use low carbohydrate um, and fat adapted uh, type training and nutrition to uh, as kind of their, you know, their ace in the hole, you know, because it's just such a stable form of uh, fueling your your uh, uh, activities.
0: Yeah, there's an ultra runner by the name of Zach Bitter who just won the JFK 50 Miler, and he's, you know, he's a big proponent of the fat adapted diet, and I've I've listened to multiple interviews of him just kind of talking about it. And it almost makes me kind of want to ask my endo almost to see like what their opinion is of it. Mm -hmm. And my question for you is have you asked like an endocrinologist or anything like that, like what their professional opinion is on a fat adapted diet or like, I want to say an extremely low carb, but it's not extremely low carb. It's just low carb.
1: Right. Um, yes, I have. Um, I've talked with, uh, with her pretty much every single appointment because according to her, um, I basically am one of the best or most well-controlled diabetics in her entire practice. Oh, just um, to, your, to your horn here. Well, you know, and it's just <laughs> as kidding, an example yeah. to say, yeah, I mean, I know. And, and <laughs> that's where I, you know, when you say that it does sound braggadocious. but yeah,
0: now you're going to get, I'm not going to put your email in the show notes so you don't get any. I know. On. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but it's more of a um, an example of you know what is possible. And it's not me per se that like I'm some sort of special human being. It's just because I've been able to put or put into practice a lot of the science that's already been done by many physicians and so on, um, and it works. You know, yeah. I mean that's, that's all it is to it. Um, it does require um, kind of a change in paradigm, a big one, matter of fact. And I tell people. Uh, more often than not, that if there is one blessing out of getting um, type one diabetes, is that it's it's forced me to be much more um, proactive and introspective on nutrition and and fueling various activities. Which and is that's hard to well, say that you're a better athlete now that you're diabetic. Almost, I mean, I, yeah. I, I think I, that you I, know, sometimes
0: I think that, and I've had no, I don't know if anyone on my show said that, but I know I've heard of different diabetics say that they're more in tune with their bodies now that they're diabetics
1: sure yeah i mean i I would definitely agree with that um but um yeah getting back to my endo you know she (laughs) it's kind of funny that um she kind of asks me like what are you doing now as far as you know here's your blood values here's your a1c i see it's at you know 5.1 and I see that you're, uh, you know, in your in range on your CGM, yeah. ninety six to ninety eight percent of the time. What you should are tell you her? Gonna... You
0: got to, you got to tell her. Well, you're gonna have to make an appointment. I've, I've got an opening yeah. in three weeks. <laughs> you can come to yeah. my office and I'll sit down and school you.
1: Right, right. But um, yeah, she's like, and she's, you know, and to her credit, she's very inquisitive because you know she, she wants to know. Um, and I just tell her, you know, I, I practice, you know, uh, low carb, lower carbohydrate. Uh, you know, high fat diet, um, you know, stay away from, you know, you know, sugars and grains and, uh, you know, um, high glycemic carbohydrates, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it works for me and, you know, um, you know, with MDI, you know, of course I do the levemir. i mentioned that for my base or basil. And then, uh, for bolus, I use a combination of, um, Humalog, which, you know, um, I actually dilute using a uh, uh, saline because my insulin sensitivity is at a point where if I take one unit of uh Humalog, it'll, it'll drop my blood sugar almost 80 points. So that's not, you know, that's, that's way too aggressive. So I dilute yeah. that. I guess that's, more, that's
0: one of the benefits of being on the pump is that you can kind of micro sure.
1: bolus. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the, the, techniques that are the things that i do is because i don't use a pump yeah you're absolutely right yeah if yeah. you're on a pump you can do like 0.5 or you know 0.25 of a unit or probably even smaller than that i'd imagine
0: yeah i don't know about everyone's but yeah mine do not let me do 0.1 of a unit
1: oh wow okay yeah so yeah those micro bolus um you know adjustments are a huge advantage i'm sure for a pump um and then um you know the other insulin that i use is uh r which is a regular insulin so it's a less aggressive curve and that much uh more closely follows the um uh, insulin requirements or the the curve if you want to think of it that way of uh you know a higher fat uh diet and uh um you know low carb lower carbohydrate diet and so it's a more you know um Uh, a a hill instead of a mountain i guess is what you're trying to follow yeah so um, you know that that regular insulin has a longer action time so generally around you know peaks at two hours and lasts around four or five hours which more accurately follows a higher fat uh, type meal or, or snack or whatever it might be
0: is that something you had to look into yourself or did someone bring you that as a solution
1: um, I came across those various techniques, particularly well, really, all three of those for MDI through a uh, doctor called Richard Bernstein. I don't know if you heard of him. No. Um, he is a, uh, I believe he's 83 now. Um, so and is a type one and has been since he was uh, a young child. So, I mean, wow. it's kind of one of those deals where I'm the type of person that, um, someone like that whatever they're doing must work <laughs> you know um because he's 83 years old and has basically no diabetic complications um so i you know came across his book through um one of the facebook groups and um called type 1 grit and um uh read his book and he has a lot of those techniques on and and he also advocates a you know higher fat moderate protein low carbohydrate diet as well and that's what he practices and and so I started to implement those techniques and had to do a little you know there's a learning curve because you know he doesn't uh, um, do any types of significant endurance sports but um, that was the the first introduction to those techniques that I found Um, and then there's another really good book by uh, um, Doctor uh, Kenneth Runyon, who was diagnosed fairly late, I think, in his 30s, and he's a triathlete um, and, is all, and is is an MD and wrote a uh, a book called K- the Ketogenic Diet for Type One Diabetes. Oh, I've
0: seen that book on Amazon.
1: Yeah, it's Hopefully it's a good he's one. he's
0: a, a future guest of the podcast.
1: Yeah, he's a great guy. I haven't talked to him specifically, but I've heard him on numerous uh, podcasts and, um, on YouTube. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, uh, yeah, he's got a lot of good information for sure. So to get back to your ride, if, mm-hmm.
0: so you're you're in the middle of a ride, it's time to mm-hmm. fuel. What are you eating?
1: Um, honestly, um, anything short of about three hours, I don't need to eat <laughs> honestly. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, occasionally, um, yeah, well, with one caveat, um, particularly mountain biking, is, is I I do have having done both, I, I relate mountain biking to trail running in that it's uh probably, in my opinion, I guess, and maybe you'd agree with trail running, um, is one of the most challenging uh types of activity for a diabetic because you're your anaerobic anaerobic all at the same time or rather in the course of the same activity right
0: yeah especially depending on the terrain yeah
1: sure yeah and so um if it's going to be a particularly hard um you know ride or a race um i actually use a product called ucan super starch
0: yeah I've heard um, of it before
1: yep and again that that uh, a couple of the top triathletes uh, use that as well because they're you know again fat adapted and I know, uh, Mike pig was, uh, involved in some of the, um, development, I believe of that product, but, um, it, what it is, is, uh, by calling it a super starch is, is the more, uh, correct name for it is a, a resistant starch. So it's a type of starch that's derived from corn, but it doesn't digest until it gets down into the lower intestine. And so it's specifically designed for non-diabetics, not to have a, large glycemic, uh, load, um, and to digest very, very slowly. And so I've, I use that product and, um, that gives me just that little bit of extra, like a uh, bit of carbohydrate to kind of stabilize my blood sugar while I'm riding. But, um, yeah, once I, unless I get beyond about three hours, I don't need more than one scoop of that. UCAN stuff. And that's only 18 grams of carbohydrates. So yeah.
0: How many, do you know how many calories it
1: is or? Uh, yeah, it's 62 calories. Wow. Yeah. That's, I, yeah. I
0: want to yeah, so you're definitely the most fat adapted, um, athlete that I've ever spoken to, especially that we've ever had on the podcast. So this is super interesting. What do you, like, what would be a pre meal, like a pre race um, meal for you then? So if you have a 30 mile ride coming up on a trail, what yeah. do you eat prior?
1: Um, my staple for like a breakfast, if, you know, um, non-training or excuse me, non-race days, you know, like if I'm just doing a, um, working out like lifting weights or a short run or ride, um, I'll do all those fasted usually in the morning. So I won't eat anything. I'll just have coffee, um, and off I go. Um, but, uh, prior to a race and like, if I'm to have a normal breakfast, um, generally, eggs, um, avocados. Uh, so I guess like anywhere from three to maybe four eggs, put some uh mushrooms in there, a little bit of bacon, and then have a whole avocado and put some hot sauce on it and some salt, and that's about it. <laughs>
0: wow. What about dinners?
1: Um, dinners, um, you know, again, it, you know, I modify those depending on you know what I've done for the day. Um, but, uh, again, still fairly low g- carbohydrate, but like, um, let's see here, like last night, um, my wife and I made uh, a nice marinated flank steak on the grill, um, sliced it up. Um, she made some, uh, low carbohydrate, uh, or ketogenic, um, like soft, uh, not really taco shells, but, uh, tortilla shells, um, you know, put the flank steak on there, put some, you know, cheese, lettuce you know basically a soft taco except the shell was you know only you know one gram of carbohydrate and uh you know they're delicious man i don't don't think i knew that existed i'm gonna have to look into that oh yeah man like well and for the listeners if you're interested in doing like low carbohydrate or even you know ketogenic is kind of has become in the last six months in my opinion or eight months really it's becoming a little bit more of a um not really a fad, but a little bit more buzzy, you know? Yeah, um, no, it's, I mean, I would say, I would go as far as to
0: say it's kind of blowing up.
1: Yeah, it is blowing up. And and in my opinion, the reason why it's blowing up is because there is so much science behind it. And it's it's profoundly effective for treating a lot of uh, non-communicable diseases and so on, which is another tangent we can go into later. But um, you, um, yeah, you can go on Google or anywhere and just put in keto taco shell and you'll get, 50 recipes or, uh, low carbohydrate, low carb, uh, lasagna, and you'll get 10 recipes, you know? So there's, you know, now yes. And generally it does require you to cook, but you know, I think that's a small price to pay because your, your health benefits and your performance benefits as an athlete are going to, you know, are going to pay dividends.
0: Yeah. And I'll I'll put the disclaimer out there that I, I don't never es- I never necessarily encourage people to like change anything about their insulin or a diet without asking a sure, doctor, yeah. but I mean I mean we can comfortably say that like you've said there is a lot of research that shows that a fat adapter or a ketogenic diet is, you know, relatively productive for a diabetic or even a regular human, um, especially in sure. terms of being able to like turn over energy in the middle of an effort. I know they. there's a lot of examples of athletes that tend to bonk, you know, in the middle of races and they just don't know why. And it's because, you know, yeah, their liver's done. Yeah. You've essentially hit that. Yeah. That glycemic wall. Yep. Can you get on the other side of it? Yeah, sometimes. But I've, you know, I know like the Zach bitters of the world would point to, you know, their high carb diets and to say like, Hey, your stomach just can't handle that many carbs in the middle of an effort. You know, you'd be better off fat adapting. And then having that consistent burn of energy throughout your effort and maybe a little bit right. better results. But you know, having said that, there's still plenty of athletes that eat high carb and blow everyone out of the water. Sometimes, you know what I mean. So it's
1: oh yeah, yeah. And you know, I think ask it's, your
0: doctor before you go change anything. But after you ask your doctor, you're still probably going to do whatever you want. So best of luck. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and I and I tell people that as well too. You know, because I I would say. Out of all the folks that I know um, and that I train with and race with and, you know, are good friends of mine, um, I'm, to my knowledge, the only one that is, like, fat-adapted, i.e. low-carbohydrate, you know, athlete, so to speak, Um, you know. And honestly, take type 1 diabetes out of the equation and, you know, I didn't have to go and go looking for this information, you know, who knows? Maybe I'd still be right there with them, you know, but… now that I've acquired this information, you know, anyone who, uh, is interested in listening or, you know, has questions, you know, um, because it's worked so well for me, like I'm more than happy to answer questions. I'm certainly not going to sit there and beat people over the head with it and say, oh, this is the only way if you don't do this, you're, you know, you're ridiculous and you're hurting yourself. I mean, if you're, if whatever you're doing is working well for you, you know, and you don't have any desire to change it, you know, great. You know, but, um, if what you're doing is either frustrating or not working well for you, this is another option that's out there that I can attest that I've found that for me, you know, there's that disclaimer for me, it works well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I do that a lot, Tori. Um, <laughs> I think it's the cliche saying it's like, if something is you know, like the definition of insanity is doing something over and over again and expecting the results to be different.
1: Sure. And you know, that's sort of why I stole uh, that from a movie, A movie, but Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's sort of why, like, um, I've kind of wanted to be one of the folks on these uh, podcasts, because, you know, you go on social media, you know, getting back to type one, and you see all these folks that are posting, you know, these, you know, graphs from their CGMs or, you know, um, just generally describing some, you know, really, um, you know, traumatic, um, excursion on their blood sugars, you know, and asking for help or, you know, they're like, I don't understand why this is happening, you know, and, um, you know, that they're getting frustrated and fatigued with the disease and so on. And, you know, I just thought by maybe telling part of my story that maybe someone will hear it and say, Oh, wow. I never even knew that was available. I, I never even knew about that. Let me go check that out and maybe it will help them, you know? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I I say this probably on every episode, but one of the goals for sure is to motivate diabetics to get out and run, but is to also have a center point for knowledge and, you know, the sharing of wealth, so to speak, when it comes to diabetes and running and endurance sports. And so now, yeah, don't, don't feel bad for bringing up that or, you know, starving the limelight in terms of, you know, getting the word out about, you know, fat adapted diet. It's definitely a perspective that. I knew I wanted to have on the show at some point in terms of, you know, nutrition and fueling for endurance sports and life in general. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's just one of those things where, um, you know, there's so many people that have gone long before me as far as kind of blaze the trail and there's lots of fat adapted athletes out there and type one athletes. And there's lots of type one athletes that don't, you know, that, you know, have a more traditional, like, maybe paleo type diet or, you know, even, uh, a more traditional, what I would call an athlete's diet, you know, that's much higher in carbohydrates, but, and it works well for them. And, you know, if they've got that kind of nailed down and figured out and it's working well for them, I'm certainly not going to tell them to change, but yeah, you know, um, do yeah, you ever, there are options.
0: Do you ever have any lows in your riding?
1: Honestly? Um, Let's see, probably two years ago I had a couple instances during that season where I think I was doing this race called the Growler, which was a uh 64 mile race um out in uh western Colorado. Um and I was on the bike for I don't know, almost seven hours because it's it's a lot of elevation gain in the desert and everything. But um yeah, I got down to a in the upper 50s, a couple times during that ride, but that was also before I'd gotten that adapted. Um, since kind of uh, delving more into getting you know sugars and grains and you know the higher glycolytic stuff out of my diet, um, no, I mean, honestly, I, I've, I think there's been a few times where I've gone into the upper 60s, but um, because of CGM and being able to you know carry a meter with me and check. CGM goes off. I have my rate you when know, I, when I'm exercising, I usually set my, uh, my, uh, low alert at, uh, 85. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, CGM goes off 85. Oh, okay. Well, you know, that goes back to, and you see folks like on some of the, uh, uh, type one ketogenic forums or type one, uh, fat adapted athlete, um, Facebook groups and stuff like that.
0: They're like, Oh, you know, uh,
1: how do I correct the low? You know, I don't want to mess up my diet. And I'm like, dude, you got to stay safe. Eat a freaking glucose tab, yeah. you know? Is that what you yeah. Is that
0: your go-to for when you're low on the ride?
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I just carry, you know, a rack of, uh, glucose tabs and, you know, the key to that, um, and this I think applies to even, you know, or, or rather anyone is, uh, particularly athletes, is not to overcorrect you know because sometimes what people will do is they're like oh shoot i'm low you know i'm at 90 or i'm at 80 and and if you have a cgm i got a diagonal arrow down yeah i'm gonna eat four glucose tabs and you're like holy crap and the next thing you know you're at 220 it's like whoa you know so you know yeah if that happens you know i'll bust one out of my you know jersey pocket and one glucose tab and if i know i've got a three mile climb you know and thousand feet of elevation game or gain or something. Uh, yeah, I might take two, you know?
0: So you're on the multiple injections of your 12 hour insulin. Do you take that? Like if you're going to fat, if you're on a fasting workout in the morning, are you injecting that before as well? Or is that, you're still riding your shot from the night before?
1: Uh, no, I I still, uh, I'll do my uh, long acting, um, before I go out and do the fasted workout again, because to, um, counteract the, um, stress response that occurs when you go out and do a type of activity, yeah, um, which can raise your blood sugar. And so sometimes that happens too. Like, yeah. um, so is again, that not the, being is that the, the
0: third shot that you mentioned every day sometimes or most days?
1: Um, you said usually you the, two to
0: three, but Yeah I'm assuming yeah. that's one in the morning, one at night and then one prior to a major effort.
1: Um, actually generally after the major effort, because, oh, okay. um, like for example, um, uh, like, I don't know, a couple of couple months ago. Um, if I know, hey, I'm going to go out and do a three-hour ride, you know, um, get up, maybe have that breakfast I talked about, and I'll take my normal, uh, or rather my um, Leavener or my long-acting insulin, um, maybe cut it down by 20%. So instead of doing eight units, I'll do six units, you know, eat my breakfast, go out, do the ride. And then when I get back from the ride, maybe I'm done it. 10 o'clock in the morning, I'll do an additional two units of levomir long acting. And then that will kind of, uh, carry me to evening time when I would take my pre, you know, like before I go to bed, my long acting insulin. Yeah.
0: kind of. Did, did your endo help kind of cover your numbers throughout the day or like, did they kind of help you with figuring out how many shots and exactly what number of levomir you would need to get to on average every day? Or did you kind of figure that out on your own?
1: Um, I kind of had to figure that out on my own because, um, I just found that most of the ratios that they gave me were just way off. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they have a hard job because they're trying to use clinical averages to, you know, say, well, based upon your height, weight, age, and you know, this and that, we think you should be at, you know, one unit of Humalog per 30 grams of carbs, you know? And so they give you these carb ratios but that's a starting point and so that's another thing that I'm a big proponent of with diabetics and especially is making sure or acquiring your own knowledge on how your insulin reacts with your body and that's crucial i think you know because it's not going to be the same for everybody um you know my physiology where it is right now seems to be abnormally insulin sensitive you know, and it's not because I'm on a dawn phenomenon or excuse me, uh, honeymoon period. It's that's just the way my body is. It, it always has been. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like my total uh, uh dosage for most days is only uh, for a 24-hour period. It's only between 10 and 12 units, um, which is, is quite low if you don't do, you know, MDI. Um, and then like, you know, my insulin to carb ratio, if I had one for like a normal rapid acting insulin, like, um, uh, Novolog would be basically one unit of insulin would cover almost 80 grams of carbohydrates for me. So, um, and so I have to use pens that use half units. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And even then, it, that's why I use that, uh, Novolin R, which is a regular acting insulin because it's not as potent or not as um, aggressive. And so that, that allows me to give me, or gives me that, um, that, uh, ability to kind of match what I'm doing and so, not use pump.
0: Yeah. And you said you had become more sensitive since you went fat adapted.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because again, with the, the type of food that you're eating, for example, if I eat something that, uh you know maybe has 30 grams of fat 20 grams of protein and 10 grams of carbohydrates well that fat and protein particularly the fat digests much or rather is absorbed and metabolized would be more accurate um much more slowly than if i had 40 grams of carbohydrates you know because you know your body you know loves sugar it it just gobbles that stuff up like crazy but it it reacts much more quickly Whereas, like fats and proteins are absorbed slower. And so, you need a different type of insulin regime to handle that. Otherwise, you know, like if I were to take one unit of uh, rapid acting insulin to cover uh, a a higher fat, you know, low carb meal, you know, I might be at 90. And then I take that one unit of insulin. And even though I wait until 10 minutes after I started eating, uh, it's going to shoot me right down to like 50, you know, um, because those that nutrition isn't going to absorb the same way. Um, so that's why I've had to, you know, look for some different, uh, dosing techniques, I guess. Yeah.
0: So what's your, what's your next race? Like what's your next, uh, I want to say your, your a race or your a event for the year.
1: Yeah. So, um, my wife and I are still trying to, you know, figure that out. Um, we're kind of looking at, um, that race that i mentioned, uh, before that, that is called the growler that's, uh, in, May, um, that's probably going to be one of our first ones. Yeah. Um, you better so, get uh, to signing up. What's that? I so said, you
0: you got to get to signing up.
1: I know, man. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's like that down by you. I actually grew up in, uh, in, in Tennessee. So I'm originally from the South, but, um, yeah,
0: I'm from Nashville. So,
1: oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I was, I was over in uh, Knoxville. So, um, East Tennessee, Yeah, but, um, yeah, out here in the mountain West, man, it's, uh, some of these, the, these races are getting ridiculous, man. Like they're filling up at six, eight months out, you know, it's, it's kind of bonkers. Um, yeah, I,
0: don't, I don't think I realized how big the mountain biking community was until my wife and I went to our honeymoon in Breckenridge and we were there oh, okay. during the Breck epic. And it was like,
1: Oh wow. It was, yeah.
0: yeah, it was insane. I don't think I never even thought about it. You know, I always thought of Breckenridge as like a little ski town and I assumed it was mm-hmm. dead in the summertime, but no, like we, we, we barely got a room. It was so booked.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My wife and I, we've done the firecracker 50, which is uh, July 4th. It's a big mountain bike uh, event there too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's, yeah, they, they pretty much all of these mountain towns and, or, uh, areas out here in the summer have completely transitioned over to, you know, um, besides hiking and all that kind of stuff and trail running.
0: Yeah. They're hosting great mountain bike
1: events. Yeah. And trail running series. Like, uh, last summer I crewed for, um, my sister and her boyfriend, they did a, uh, a trail race. Um, it's in state forest state park. It's, um, just west of, uh, Col- um, Fort Collins. And, uh, that was a 60 miler and, uh, um, yeah, it was huge. I mean, not huge. I mean, the, the ultra running tends to be not quite as crazy yet. But, um, her boyfriend Elliot and I mean, he's been doing it for eight, eight years plus, And he's like, oh man, in the last like four years, it's, it's blowing up, man. <laughs>
0: so, when you, when you meet with him, do you, do you preach the, uh, the fat adapted diet or is he already on board?
1: Um, you know, I, honestly, I, I really try, I, I, I don't really preach, you know, nutrition to folks unless they ask me and say, oh man, you know, you, you know, seem to you know, not have a weight problem and you seem to be pretty active. Like, what do you do for, you know, what do you eat? And then yeah, I'll, you yeah. know, maybe, really. but, um, yeah, to answer your question, um, yeah, we definitely talk about it. Um, he actually does use that UCAN product, um, pretty, uh, regularly. He's gradually as he's getting older, cause I, I'm 39, he's 36. Um, as he's getting older, um, you know, he's starting to notice more and more the gut upset, you know, during these races. And he was always known. And my sister would be like, man, he's, you know, like the billy goat, you know, like he could eat damn near anything and be fine. And as he's getting older, he's starting to notice more and more like GI upset and things like that on training and racing. And so he's kind of more moving over towards the, um, the more deliberate, I should guess I should say, you know, fat adaption for training and racing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Before I let you go, we'll kind of go into the last section here called tempo talk and it'll be a bunch of hopefully quick and fast questions and I think based on our conversation, some of them are nutrition related. So, but yeah, answer as fast as you can or you can elaborate as much as you want. But, um, once again, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. I think this has been oddly inspiring, especially considering I I don't know if I initially even planned on talking to you about nutrition at all. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So for tempo talk, real sugar or artificial sweetener
1: uh artificial sweetener
0: yes you know it's like 50 50 on that one so
1: yeah stevia if i have to get, if i can get more specific stevia which is not really artificial but it's non-glycemic for me
0: <laughs> if you had to go in the gym what workout would you do
1: um gym i would do weights and i would probably do a full body workout um buys and tries uh, no, I'd probably do like um, uh, large muscle groups. So, you know, push up, pull ups, bench press, squats, yeah. uh, you know, the compound movements, compound movements.
0: Favorite pre workout meal? And we, we might have touched this, but you can change your answer if you'd like.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Um, if it's going to be anything less than an hour and a half, it's just going to be coffee with some MCT oil in it. And if it's going to be something longer, Um. Yeah, man. Eggs, bacon, some avocado. Nice.
0: Favorite diabetic exercise piece of gear that you use.
1: Oh man. Um. Exercise gear. I honestly. uh, Okay. It can. It can Um, can probably be your CGM.
0: Which yeah, for you, I don't know if you use like a belt or like a Camelback or anything to hold any of your supplies while you're riding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. It. I would say. Apple watch that has the Dexcom on it. So yeah, it makes it really, really easy to, to look at those numbers, man. Yeah.
0: When you're riding, do you take a pen with you just in case, uh, like an insulin pen?
1: Um, if it's going to be something where I'm really kind of getting remote, uh, I will Mm -hmm. just because, you know, you blow a tire and you're 25 miles away from your car, man, you're probably going to be spending the night. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Favorite food you would eat a huge portion of if you weren't a diabetic. And oh, man. I guess I should also say, and you're cheating on your keto diet
1: or your, right. your fat adapted diet for the day. Oh man. Um, this is like a
0: Friday night and you're trying, to, you're trying to let your hair down, you know?
1: Yeah, man. Um so I spent a lot of summers up in Maine. So I probably, it would be a dead tie between a big piece of uh, um, wild Maine blueberry pie or a um, this uh, these apple fritters that this place up in the mountain called the Ten Star cells. <laughs> that
0: sounds incredible. I Yeah, tried, it is. <laughs> I've noticed that most people, obviously, naturally as diabetics, we tend to eat something or want to eat something that's sweet. So
1: that's always. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, like you said, you know, non-diabetic, you know, definitely doing a cheat, very <laughs> you know, not really a cheat, but a very occasional thing. Yeah, I'd go there, but. I don't really have too much of a sweet tooth anymore. Like I think once you get it out of your system, you, you at least i found that I've kind of lost that like craving. But anyway.
0: Something you wish everyone knew about diabetes.
1: Oh man. Um, hmm. I guess on the type one side of the house that it really can happen to anyone and that it's nothing that they did to cause it. And maybe towards the type two side of things is that, um, again, it's not necessarily their fault, but, um, you know, just to know that a diabetic can and, uh, can't really do anything and everything that a non-diabetic can do provided they know how to control the disease safely.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned type two diabetics because I think, by nature of the show with most of the guests and me being a type one diabetic, sometimes I think I leave the, the type twos out, but I've, I've been reached, you know, by multiple type two diabetics who say that they enjoy the show and they're learning a lot and they're motivated and yeah, to be inclusive for them is awesome as well. Cause yeah, like you said, for a lot of them, you know, it's in a lot of like genetic predispositions to type two diabetes and stuff like that. And a lot sure. of them, a lot of them are on insulin as well. So they, they learn just as, you know, much, as we have about insulin sensitivity and how to use insulin and maximize it for performance. So yeah, they, that's awesome. Remembering they included it's the type twos mm-hmm. advice for someone that is a diabetic and wants to get into endurance sports or has been an athlete for a while and just got diagnosed kind of like we did a little late.
1: Right. Um, kind of a new phrase that I've, that I've I guess grown a liking to is you got to read the whole book And what I mean by that is that, you know, in our fast paced society and, you know, social media and, you know, quick fixes and, and a lot of endurance athletes have type A personalities. We want things quick. And sometimes we don't take the time to really, um, delve into things maybe as much as we should. And so by what I mean by read the whole book is that you can't just read the preface and the first two chapters and say, yeah, yeah, I got it. Like I'm good. Cause you're going to miss a lot of good stuff that's later on, you know, that is going to help you out down the road.
0: Absolutely. Well, that, that was perfect, John. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing everything with us.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it.
0: Hey guys, that wraps up today's interview. Once again, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the show. It's the perfect way to make sure you get fresh episodes delivered straight to your phone every Monday. Also, make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Diabetic Running Podcast, or visit me at thediabeticrunningpodcast.com. If you think you or anyone you know would be a perfect interviewee for the show, make sure to reach out to me on any of those platforms and tell me a little bit about the story you think that we should share. Once again, guys, thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you guys again next week. Happy training.